This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. This is Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network. And I'm here with uh, Tony Prescott and our guest uh, Stan Grillner. Uh, Stan is a neurophysiologist, and Stan was speaking this morning about the control of, of motor behavior, of action, in particular in the lamprey. And and Stan, your um, the starting point of your of your presentation was was the observation that there are lots of similarities in how motor patterns are organized across different species, right, from fish to to humans. So what, what's really this the, the, the invariance there that you see? I mean, the invariance is in the control systems. In From the brainstem, you have command centers that activate spinal locomotor circuits. Of course, you have then <coughs> uh, different species, of course, have different forms of locomotion, and fish locomotion and human locomotion is not not identical, but it's built up in the same way with central networks, with sensory control of these networks. And um, so there is, with the control structure, it's very clear similarities. Okay, but that that <coughs> runs across the whole nervous system, or are there, or are there any, any divergent patterns there? Or for you, that really goes from, let's say, spinal cord, where you directly interface the periphery to, all the way to frontal areas? Yeah, I mean, essentially, we have the execution of uh, of different behaviors like locomotion, postural control, eye movements, etc., is uh, is is controlled at the brainstem spinal cord level. But then, in addition, you have control circuits in the forebrain that uh, um, decide or helps to decide when a given motor program should be turned on or turned off. Mm-hmm. Okay, but now you, you very early on, so we're talking quite some decades now now ago, decided to really focus on 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 one species in particular, that, which is the lamprey, which which you believe is really, let's say, the prototypical brain of of all vertebrates, right? So what what's the power of this of this lamprey model? Why did you zoom in oh. on that one so strongly? Well, I mean, the history before that is that we were interested in mammals, uh, in the basic design of the locomotor control system, and there we showed that you can activate the uh, spinal cord motor centers from the brainstem in in a well-conserved command center. In the spinal cord, we have the networks that coordinate the different movements, and we could... uh, and they can do so without any sensory input. On the other hand, we show that when the sensory input is present, it can help regulate the locomotor um, movement in a very good way. So that was the starting point when I, I like to go further and understand not only that we have a network in the spinal cord, but, but the intrinsic mechanism that is um, are responsible for for this, and we uh, and I did not think that was reachable in the mammal at the time, so that's why I selected to go to as simple a vertebrate pos- as possible, but still a vertebrate with the same basic design of the nervous system, and so that's when we opted for the lamprey yeah. for several reasons. What what other options did you have at the time? I was thinking about the amphioxus as one possibility. I actually started and we did some work on elasmobranchs, the dogfish, and showed that you have sensory generation there and and you have uh, uh, sensory feedback and so forth. But but also the elasmobranch spinal cord was not very useful, so that's why we opted for 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 the lamprey. I looked on the amphioxus also, but the amphioxus is uh, 
the spinal cord is only 50 microns in dimension, and at the time I didn't think this was a possible to use experimentally. Mm -hmm. Would you consider going back to Ampioxus now and seeing how many of the conserved traits that you see in the jawless fish are also present? Uh, are there techniques there now to do that? Well, in my next life, I would like to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but now, did you ever did you ever regret that that early choice for lamprey? Did you ever think like, oh no, this was actually a mistake? No, I have always thought it was a very good choice at the time. <clears throat> if I would have had to do it today, with all the um, uh, tools that there are in the zebra fish, mm -hmm. I mean, the zebra fish uh, would have been been uh, probably a choice to make because I mean you have all the different tools mm -hmm. with the GDF marked subtypes of neurons etc. On the other hand the zebra fish brain is much much smaller. I'm not sure that we would have done been able to do the things that we did mm. have done in the lamprey. So right. So the lamprey uh, appears in evolution about 560 million years ago. So at the beginning of the Cambrian yeah. explosion. So how firm how firm is is that understanding of the lamprey really let's say anchoring this this phylogenetic expansion of of vertebrate? Well, it's it's the jawless fish, really, isn't it? Yeah. So we don't know exactly what the ancestral jawless fish would have been like. Well, that, that's really what I'm fishing for, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we one has fossil records, and, yeah. and the claim is that it is quite quite conserved, but of course, over five hundred sixty million years. A few things may have happened. Mm -hmm. So, so okay. Now, so now we have the lamprey, and then in some sense, you a significant amount of time you really spend on understanding how the spinal cord of this the fish works, and mm -hmm. how that how the how the physiology of that spinal cord and also its anatomy in the end translate into locomotion. So, mm -hmm. what what are now the basic design principles of that spinal cord of of the lamprey? Now, I mean, the original goal of taking up the lamprey was to understand ACPG, mm -hmm. central pattern generator network. And and I think what what is the basic tenet is is that we have excitatory premotor interneurons that are also interacting and together as a collective uh, generating the burst pattern. And then in addition we have inhibitory interneurons that coordinate the different burst generators. So I mean that's so essentially membrane properties are critical, synaptic interaction is critical and the types of synaptic interaction that you have. And um, but but um, mm -hmm. which key parameters of at the cellular level are really key here? With with regard to to the membrane properties the calcium NMDA receptors, voltage-dependent calcium channels, low-voltage-activated calcium channels are quite important for regulating the calcium levels in, in the neurons. And then we have the related calcium-activated potassium channels and also at higher level of activity, sodium-activated potassium channels that pull the membrane potential down and helps to terminate the burst and then also to close the voltage-dependent mm -hmm. NMDA receptors. So functionally, it basically means you need a bursting unit mm -hmm. that is asymmetrically coupled to, opponent, to an opponent mm -hmm. bursting yeah, exactly. unit so you have yeah. your oscillation. Yeah, so but, that, but I mean, even without the reciprocal coupling, mm -hmm. you still have oscillation. Of course. Yeah. But you need opponent coupling mm -hmm. if you want to translate this into yeah. movement. Yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. So, um, but now what you also showed is that 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 basic central pattern generator network about which we have about a hundred making up the spinal cord of a lamprey, um, if I'm correct, mm -hmm. is also again under a lot of additional control, descending control coming out of higher mm -hmm. brain areas, mm -hmm. right? So. What are the key features of that kind of control? The key features and what can drive the network is a tonic drive from the brainstem. And the locomotor command centers in turn can activate the uh, 
reticulous binding neurons. So that is sufficient. So you elevate the excitability of the spinal cord via rather unspecific activation of excitatory and inhibitory interneurons. The same reticulous spinal can activate both excitatory, inhibitory, and motor, motor neurons, but the overall excitation increases. So I mean, that's answer one. Answer two is, is that in addition, we actually have a feedback from the headwards, the segments that are rather close to the head, which feeds into the reticulospinal neurons. So they are actually, even though they may be tonically activated from command centers, they get rhythmically active. And it turns out that the fact that the reticulospinals are rhythmically active is um, provides a stronger excitation of the more rostral segments and more tonic of, of the remaining, but it also provides gating signals, so that if you have steering signals from the, um, for instance, tectum or spiraculiculus like, um, then these signals need not be very precise. The command signal that lasts for one cycle will then be gated by the reticulospinal activity. Mm -hmm. So that's an added feature that I didn't speak about. Right. Mm. And another added feature that you did speak about, though, is also the role of, if you want, the embodiment itself of the spinal cord, right? There's also a dense coupling with the periphery through the stretch receptors mm -hmm. in the body of the spinal, of, mm. of, of, of the lamprey. So how does the, that body itself contribute to, in the end, the very smooth uh, sinusoidal movements that you have to generate f to get swimming. Yeah, and, the <clears throat> and you can have well-coordinated swimming movements without any sensory feedback. But with the sensory feedback, you get a compensation for for um, any any perturbation, which is uh, which helps then. Uh, the animal to to handle unexpected perturbations, uh, like when when swimming in a brook, and mm -hmm. being moved in in different directions. There are also additional. Actually, the um, med cells have somewhat different power in different parts of the body. But if you would take a spinal cord out of the body, mm. and you would activate it, would it also swim? Only the spinal cord. I mean, the spinal cord would generate With the rhythmic activity. Mm -hmm. The spinal cord itself would not mm -hmm. swim. No, right. But what are the minimum components of the muscles that you have to retain to get swimming movement of of this body? Okay, so so we are asking how much muscle should mm -hmm. be retained That's in right. order to have. Um, movement yeah i don't know i mean essentially i can not answer that directly what mm. I, I i can say is that during slow swimming you have primarily the slow motor units activated mm -hmm. and uh, that's sufficient to activate the locomotor movement but i, I okay mm. now why this is interesting is that for instance if if you look at the modeling of of behavior there's quite a discussion now on the very intricate coupling of nervous system control and the specific biomechanics that it's mm -hmm. actuating, mm -hmm. right? And that, that's also, if you take the body of this, of this lamprey, it's not that this spinal cord is really deciding exactly on the positions of different body segments, mm -hmm. sure. right? Mm -hmm. It also depends again on the bending and the forces that this body is yeah. exposed to. Yeah to generate the movement. So it was, yeah, sure. It was for that reason I was asking about a more decomposed lamprey mm. and how well that would still function. Mm. So uh, then you mentioned uh, slow swimming, and I guess the lamprey can swim at different speeds. Mm. Can it uh, locomote in different modes, um, or is, is everything a variant on the basic pattern? I mean, when it swims forward, it's it's essentially the same pattern, but I mean the frequency of oscillations, the burst frequency can can um, go from 0 0.3, 0 0.4 hertz up to 10 hertz. 
so, so I mean, it's it's a considerable range. And what happens then is is that you recruit uh, more and more motor neurons in order to achieve these alternating movements. So, in terms of vertebrate locomotion pattern generation, it's uh, uh, the, almost the simplest kind because whereas land mammals will have different gaits. Um, the lamprey will have a basic swimming pattern and then it will have you can do that at different speeds and i guess it can turn by different amounts but it can turn and it can swim backwards right okay yeah can it roll would it do that yes it is rolling particularly if you leash in one vestibular apparatus mm -hmm. okay <laughs> no, but, uh, but i mean what, what is interesting i mean we haven't talked at all about the the control of body orientation, but but we've done ex experiment now quite some time ago, uh, where where we I mean the lamprey corrects itself, and we have looked on detailed on, on on that connectivity, but then you have the different reticulospinal nuclei, the anterior, the middle, and the posterior, and the mesencephalic, and they are activated. Um, uh, it maximally activated at different angle, one at 45 degree, another at 90 degree. The anterior rhombocephalic reticular nucleus is activated maximally when uh, the lamp is upside down. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's a selective control of, the, of body orientation. And you also have that biased in uh, under under conditions when the lamprey uh, likes to orient itself towards the light when when, when the light is, is coming in from from the side mm -hmm. right so now you you've analyzed in great detail the, the spinal cord and now we know roughly how this animal can swim mm -hmm. and it, it it's a very robust system mm -hmm. um and now, in order to, to, to validate your understanding, you also built a very detailed model of this lamprey spinal cord. Yeah. Right, so is it really, was it like a one-to-one -one copy of, of a biological spinal cord? I mean, what we have done, probably not a one-to-one -one copy, but, uh, but, but we have simulated, in this uh, later large simulation from 2009, we have simulated the, the um, excitatory interneurons with the variability in cellular properties and size that you have. So in each segment we have that variability mm -hmm. introduced. Uh, so I mean it's a um, fairly close copy um, and the ambition is that each group, uh, each population of cells should be as close as possible to the natural counterpart. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that, th that it's very important that we have the variability in each pool of, of, of interneurons because that makes for a, a much more uh, stable motor pattern. Uh, if all, uh, if, uh, because with a different uh, sensitivity of the neurons, uh, some, uh, some neurons in the population are, are recruited first and then you have a progressive recruitment and a progressive de-recruitment. And that makes for a much more stable activity. Mm -hmm. So the variability is not an accident; it's built into the system. So, in what in what properties, what cellular properties do you find this this variability? I mean, it's a, it's overall size, so the input resistance, but uh, but it is also uh, the size uh, of the um, sort of the calcium uh, dependent potassium channels. We 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 also vary different cellular properties plus minus 15 percent mm -hmm. or so, so that is roughly the range in which yeah, you will find yeah, this variability yeah, yeah. and you you identified it first in these mm -hmm. simulations or you already had seen that in in your biological preparation in that case we had seen that in the biological preparation mm -hmm. and we introduced that but we could also then show that without that we had the system didn't perform well mm -hmm. with the variability you have a much stable matter mm -hmm. much more stable matter activity Okay, so then uh, what were the main lessons that, that you extracted from this system level model and this highly detailed and, and constrained mm. model? I mean, one thing was, it was clear, the variability. And I mean, we could also explore things that if we modified uh, the, uh, 
particularly the spike frequency adaptations through calcium-dependent potassium channels, it's important. We could also simulate the effect of 5-HT on the network. Mm -hmm. And, um, and um, we, which... No, but it seems that the model uh, sort of like confirmed your understanding of the system. But it didn't necessarily generate a new insight, did it? I think, I mean, it, the simulations, the segmental simulations that we mm -hmm. did quite uh, quite long time ago, that certainly uh, gave a lot of insights to new experiments and mm -hmm. so forth. So, I mean, there we have had a close in interaction. The insights that we got with these larger system simulations were also related to the control and forward and backward. I spoke a little bit about mm -hmm. that. The fact that if you have this huge network with 10,000 neurons, and it's sufficient that you tinker a little bit with about 5-10% of the network, and then you can modify the pattern of activity entirely in the entire network. It was something that we had not predicted. Right. So now, so now here we have, so you, you've done, the, I mean, how many years did it take you to sort of work your way through the spinal cord finish your simulations, you can say, okay, now we understand really how this thing works. How, how many years of work is that? Well, too many. <laughs> 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 but uh, would 20, 20 years be a reasonable guess? I mean, of course, uh, during this period, uh, we have, I mean, the first was that you had rhythmic activity and then the definition of the local excitatory interneurons and we could approximately understand that. And and then then we had the intersegmental and in parallel we have had the work on the brainstem and the control of body orientation. Uh, so we have added on things that we did not think about before. If you if you take the basics of the first question that I had, what in the hell, I mean, how does a burst generation occur in the spinal cord? Mm -hmm. Sort of, which was the reason why I went from, from mammals to, to the lamprey. That took probably five years or something like that. Since we had a reasonable understanding of that, we have perfected on that, but... but but, but then you have the intersegmental, forward-backward, sensory control, how that is integrated, the, uh, the posture control at the brainstem level, and now with the basic anglia addition and, and tectal and eye movement. I mean, it's <laughs> it keeps on going, right? Yeah, there's a few things left to do. Yes. So having got this detailed understanding of lamprey spinal cord, can you now look across the other vertebrate groups and say something about how spinal cord has evolved because when people talk about brain evolution they often say spinal cord is is, is pretty much conserved but there must be important things that have changed and, and what, what would you say are the, are the main ones and what does that say about uh, neural evolution more generally? Mm. I mean essentially of course what has happened the lamprey does not have paired fins so it's essentially the trunk then you have the evolution of paired fins, first in uh, elasmobranchs, that, uh, where the fins are used mostly for posture control and steering. And, and then you have the, the further elaboration of the pectoral fins in teleosts, ray-finned fish, uh, where, where the fins can actually be used for positioning the mouse quite accurately and so forth. It can also be used for slow locomotion, whereas with fast locomotion, uh, the fins are not used. So then again, it is trunk movements. And then, then you have the, uh, the elaboration of, of the pectoral fins to forelimbs in, 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 in frogs and, and other higher, higher vertebrates. And there again, rather little is known about the, the, the exact pattern. Uh, but but in in a salamander, that it's it swims 
in a lamprey-like way, and that has been done in simulations also. It works, however, uh, with the limbs uh, uh, coordinated with, with the trunk. So you have the uh, trunk movements there, but then, then of course, the limb movements take over, and uh, you, we have the, at least for the hind limbs, the um, the four-face movements, maybe slightly different for from the four uh, four legs. And uh, what happens during evolution then is that for posterior stability, the limbs point out laterally and with the support, and then progressively um, in some lizards and then mammals, the limbs move in under the body, which makes for more efficient locomotion but much greater postural problems or balance pro problems. And uh, So you, are, you have a huge amount of change in the periphery, hmm. and does that induce fundamental changes in the, the circuits that generate patterns, or are they really the same circuits, but maybe with some uh, new new add-ons to, to cope with these extra uh, appendages like limbs? I mean, <coughs> one knows rather little about the exact relation, but, but in the tadpole and the, the frog tadpole that then develops limbs, in the period where they de just develop limbs, it work, worked by Combs and Kisilar. Um, <clears throat> then you have a period where you have the rhythmic activity of the limbs going in phase with the locomotor movements of the trunk. And then you get, get a phase where they sometimes are in phase and sometimes are independent, and then they, then they become independent. And it has been argued that it's probably a group of, of interneurons that are gradually parceled out to control, uh, to control the limb that are maybe initially part of, of that. And it, it, it's also a possibility that you have the dorsal and the ventral part of the myotome related to extensors and flexors. But then the, the consequence of this seems to be that you're saying, well, the periphery shows many changes, mm -hmm. but in this local organization, the spinal cord, not many modifications are found. Is no, no, I mean, if you have new populations that are singled out from the older population mm -hmm. that become independent mm -hmm. or, or at least correlated with the, with the other, it's, it tells you possibly that it's the same, well, it seems to be the same group of interneuron genetically, mm -hmm. the B2A interneurons, but, but that they are um, are singled out, so 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 you have a large population, and then you single out some that become independent, and and you have essentially four different patterns of uh, motor activity, at least for the hind limb. But th there is a uh, qualitative change, right? If we go from lamprey salamander to let's say humans, um, uh, in our case, it's much more transient control, right? You 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 can you can change posture. And then it's you make it fix you fix it it's static. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're lamprey, okay, either you do nothing or or you're oscillating, right? So and it I would mean, suggest. I mean, you you correct body orientation very actively also. Okay, fine, yeah. but but still, everything you do is in oscillatory mode, and also you how it transduces to the periphery is in an oscillatory fashion. But in our case, we would have an oscillatory substrate, our spinal cord, mm -hmm. while my mo movement control is much more transient. Right? I have change and then I fix my post posture. It would be very annoying if I would be oscillating here with my arms around you while we're speaking. So, so, so wouldn't that suggest that there must be an additional layer of control superimposed on that design template of the lamprey? I'm not... Uh, I mean, uh, as, as humans, of course, we are walking around, we are stopping, and... Uh, <clears throat> and we can stand, and we can lie, and we can stand on our head. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have a flexibility. But um, and even when standing, we tend to oscillate a little bit, actually, mm -hmm. to maintain stability. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm not uh, I'm not convinced that there is a fundamental. Mm -hmm. 
difference there. Okay. I mean, I mean essentially. Uh, yeah. Well, look, as you know, in the first mm. in, in in the literature, people would talk about how a spinal cord is organized around force fields, and that in that sense, you can get a form of kinematic control because you can now guide limbs to to defined positions in space, mm -hmm. exploiting an oscillatory dynamic. Mm. But that would mean that the whole control system itself has sort of changed in, in character. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that's a little bit what I'm searching for, whether you find any evidence for that. If you just look at, at your understanding of spinal cord and limb brain, how it would generalize to, uh, to other vertebrates and mammals. I mean, the force field experiments are, are interesting, but, but they are... Um, Complicated interpretation. Okay. <laughs> so look. So what? what, what so we know now how, how the the lamprey spinal cord works. You've modeled it. You understand roughly, or actually in great detail, how every segment does its job. How the different cells mm -hmm. contribute to this. And now um, you want to make a jump forward and say, okay, let's now see how. And so you could think about this. This is like a, a piano, right? Because mm -hmm. you have these central pattern generators that can make you move forward, backwards. You can change body orientation. You can change speed by pushing discrete buttons. You can push these discrete pattern generators. And then you move one step up in the, in the system to say, okay, how is this now controlled? And with that, you start to look at basal ganglia, mm -hmm. right? So how do you see these structures really relate? <clears throat> the output, nigra, both nigra reticulata and, uh, and globus pallidus, uh, project to, to, to the brainstem level. You have direct projections, the locomotor command center. You have direct projections uh, to tectum, superior colliculus. Uh, the, the output targets directly the efferents of the uh, tectum and they target the, the soma level so you have, have a very powerful inhibition there whereas the, the visual input it comes on, on more peripheral dendrite. So, so it, it seems that the output of the basic ganglia is directly hooked up to neurons that are involved in eye movements, orienting movements, locomotion, and so mm -hmm. forth. And these would be then the neurons, the brainstem neurons that are or nuclei that in turn interface to your spinal cord. Well, to the reticulospinal neurons and then the spinal mm -hmm. cord. To right. target the so we would have two layers in between still, two stages, if you yeah. want. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Is it, is it possible that? those brainstem systems which are talking down to the spinal cord might have a reorganization to the extent that rather than uh, talking directly to bits of motor plan and say controlling speed or direction, they are organizing elements of behavior. So that in, in the brainstem already you might somehow have some integration whereby activation of a brainstem nuclei could generate a pattern behavior across the whole body. Or, or, or would you say that that kind of coordination is going up to the forebrain, to the basal ganglia? No, I mean, essentially, the different reticulospinal nuclei uh, are specialized in that they target different groups of motor neurons or different, probably different groups of interneurons. So, I mean, as with the example I just took with the control of body orientation, when different reticulospinal neurons um, are maximally activated at different de degree of tilt. Um, so I, I think it's it's well possible that you, I mean, you elicit locomotion, but you can elicit locomotion with a bias for the dorsal part of the myotome, which would mean swimming upwards, or, or with a bias for the for the motor neurons that swim, uh, the ventral motor neurons that will swim towards the side, and an asymmetric activation of them, uh, which would not be produced by the locomotor command region, but superimposed on that, would would lead to a turning movement in one direction or the other. Oh, but but this this distinction is an important one. Mm. Certainly, if if. We look at in, in more detail your your the overall model that you mm. present of how basal ganglia controls behavior. So maybe for now in the discussion, it's good 
to really anchor this point, right? That anatomically, from from the the nigra and uh, globus pallidus, we have two stages of processing before we hit spinal cord, and then we we can. I mean, I mean we have the locomotor command region, and then then a massive activation of the different reticular spines, which mm. they do. Uh, would would probably result in in forward locomotion, but then you can have other inputs to the reticular spine from tectum, for instance, that would be able to bias the activity. For instance, yeah. yes. Okay. But in a system that I know a bit better, sort of the rat brain, mm. you would have areas in uh, in, in the brainstem, uh, the midbrain, places mm. like the periaqueductal gray, where you organize uh, intact behaviors or certainly components of intact mm -hmm. behavior. So, for example. Uh, uh, freezing, mm -hmm. which would be a whole body activity, and you could get that by stimulating an appropriate place in the periaqueductal mm -hmm. gray. So, um, and uh, but maybe it, this is a difference from the lamprey. I mean, I, uh, maybe there is a more direct uh, talking I, from I the mean, lamprey to the what basic we, pattern generator. I mean, periaqueductal gray is a very interesting structure. I mean, in cats. You can activate different parts of the periaqueductal gray, and you get hissing sounds, or, or you get meowing, whatever that should be. I would say that, and and maybe also freezing. So I mean, and I think in birds you can get warning calls and so forth. So so you you get a mix of different parts of 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 um, escape freezing behavior from this area. In the lamprey, we know nothing about that, but the very fact that we have the medial habenula projecting to the interbedanclean nucleus, that in all other, in most other species project to the area of the periaqueductal gray, it certainly does that in, in zebrafish, would suggest that maybe it's there. But then for the discussion, maybe what's what's good? I mean, I don't think anyone ever observes a lamprey meowing. That's what I'm told. <laughs> but now they're underwater, so that might not help. But okay. But it, may be, it may be different sounds. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but the point, is, the, the key point being, already if you go to rodent or we go to cat, the behavioral repertoire might be actually significantly more extended. No, of course. I mean, right? um, I mean, what I've, we've been saying all along <laughs> is that the advantage of the lamprey has been that it has a very limited behavioral repertoire. Uh, and what uh, well, what happens during evolution is always that you add more and more sophisticated mm -hmm. mechanisms. To, to interact. No, but, so, but then the, the bottom line of your proposal is that, and you, you spent quite some time with it, explaining it in more detail, you, you see it really as, let's say, a four-layered structure with a, a core modulatory hub, right? So the, the structure would be at the bottom layer of behavior control, we have our CPGs mm -hmm. driving the spinal cord, right? Above that, we have... Uh, the nigra reticulata and the globus pallidus then that's interfaced to the striatum and the striatum in turn gets inputs from the cortex and then across these layers the, the top three layers we have the thalamus that is on the one of presenting excitatory inputs to the top up, uppermost layers cortex striatum and receiving an inhib inhibitory input also from the pallidus and the nigra Mm -hmm. This is roughly the, the architectural scheme that, that, that I mean, you present. I mean, you, you did not. I mean, I, I, I think between the CPGs, of course, you have the locomotor command centers and tectum mm -hmm. and so forth. I didn't think you mentioned them. I didn't mention them because mm -hmm. I think in your scheme, they don't really perform any further transformations because the, the control, the guiding control signals come straight out of the Nigra and the, the Polydus. And, the and there's no and there's no further modulation by, by these motor nuclei. They go they they straight they are straight control signals for your CPGs. If I understood it correctly. Yeah, I mean they are MLR is then uh, to the different reticular spinals mm -hmm. that that then ac activate this. The thing is, however, that the reticular spinals are not only used for the MLR. They are also used in the posture control. They are also used by tectum for the um, steering signals, orienting mm -hmm. signals, and perhaps more important, evasive signals that mm -hmm. you rather avoid to bump Okay, but then, then it's more like a divergence of, of signaling I mean, than that it is transforming anything. 
It's like a hub, right? It sends it sends a collateral to the tectum, let's say, as an example. Yeah. In, no, I mean, what what you have essentially is then uh, nigra reticulata, MLR, reticulospinals, and and the CPG. At the level of the reticulospinals, you have interference with a number of different other control mm -hmm. signals that can modulate that signal, modify the signal mm -hmm. very significantly. Okay. Okay, but so, but then, what you emphasized this, this was not an element you emphasized very much this morning, right? What we focused on more was this basal ganglia structure and it and its yeah. its modulation or its control yeah. of action. You only gave me ninety minutes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I know we were very stingy with that. Um, but but you know you you can uh, compensate now. So, but but the point is then then what you also actually what you spent quite some time on explaining and, and even more time on investigating in the lab is to show that the basal ganglia of the lamprey is again a template of a vertebrate mm -hmm. basal ganglia and mm -hmm. that the main pathways like your direct and indirect the go no go pathways can also be found in that in that structure mm -hmm. so why why was that so important to to establish that yeah, well, i mean what was the goal of taking up the basal ganglia well, it was first to to uh, to investigate to try to investigate the mechanism by which the different motor programs in the brainstem are controlled, and and so then we took up the basic ganglia and and my expectation as we started this was it was probably be a much simpler perhaps something like the direct pathway and so forth. Mm. But as we explored it, and we then we we found that we have absolutely all elements, mm -hmm. which probably means that this circuit has been proven to be a useful control circuit for uh, for uh, controlling uh, specific patterns of behavior, and that this circuit has been so so useful so that it has not been modified significantly uh, during evolution and what has happened in, is instead of modifying the circuit one has created modules controlling each pattern of behavior and as our behavior repertoire has become progressively more complex mm -hmm. we have added more units okay but then that's uh, that's our our current interpretation. Sure, but then how do you interpret how do you interpret the functional relevance of the direct and indirect distinction? Yeah, it's still. Uh, I mean, one. I mean, the direct pathway would be uh, implied in, in in releasing a behavior, and why do we have an indirect uh, pathway? It has recently been shown by Rui Costa, for instance, that that you may have activation of, of the direct indirect in parallel. On the other hand, what is equally evident, and that's how he interprets it, I understand, um, that, uh, that if you initiate a pattern of behavior, you have to see to that the other, other patterns of behavior do not occur. I mean, you cannot turn right and left at the same mm -hmm. time. You could think that that could be arranged at a lower level also, but I mean, it's 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 very clear that if you initiate something, you have to see to that mm -hmm. other patterns of behavior are not initiated. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, the the work that you've done in basal ganglia has been really useful for uh, researchers looking at uh, mammalian basal ganglia. Mm. So, since the mid '90s, I've been working with Peter Redgrave developing and Kevin Gurney developing mm. models of basal ganglia. And certainly, when we looked at the evolutionary literature at that point we thought, well, yes, there may have been a direct pathway yeah. in the first vertebrates, but perhaps that's it. And our models were based on the mammalian uh, circuitry, which turns out to be not too different from the circuitry that you describe. Now, um, in mammals, uh, we also see a pattern where these circuits, like you say, are repeated and across different domains of the basal ganglia as you go from dorsal to ventral there are some significant differences. And also people uh, have proposed that you might separate those into a, a motor domain 
an associative domain and a limbic domain. Mm -hmm. And people have described possibly a spiral going down through these different domains, mm -hmm. whereby one might be modulating uh, another area. Now I'm wondering, is the, uh, or maybe there's no answer for this yet, but is the lamprey basal ganglia most similar to the dorsal striatum, i.e. the motor domain, or is there any evidence there might be different domains that are modulating each other there too? Currently, we cannot um, say to what a degree it's more the dorsal and the ventral striatum, but one would think at least it's a very clear motor aspect to the control. But uh, one notes uh, in, in rodent that, that activation of the ventral striatum can lead to locomotion, channels through MLR. So, so it's, it's difficult to say, I think. It's, um, but of course, for in, from, from the perspective where you are entering this, mm. this discussion, which is pure motor-oriented, mm. in some sense, uh, these, these more ventral striatal aspects would actually not have a function because what you want to control are, in the end, these CPGs driving mm -hmm. behavior. I mean, it's these CPGs driving behavior, but then it's uh, what is driving the animal to like to locomote. It, it may even be the other way around, that, mm. that your basal ganglia in lamprey is more like ventral because your decision there is stay or go, run, eat, these mm. kinds of things. and. Uh, in the mammal, you have so many more effector systems. Maybe you need more basal ganglia domains mm. in order to allow you to, to organize movement of different effector systems. Right. Whereas mm. in the lamprey, you really only have mm. a mouth and a, and a swimming tail. Mm. Well, this is, this is indeed, you could speculate that, um, I mean, another argument would be to say, well, basal ganglia co-evolved very much with cortex to sort of balance um, the memory systems of the cortex that are very inselective, right, to become more selective. And in that sense, you would have these dual pathways dealing with, say, value and action and uh, sensory modalities and so on. But from this pure motor perspective, if you look at that structure from a spinal cord perspective, these are aspects you actually don't deal with because this is not a selection problem for spinal cord. So one challenge I see for, for what Stan is proposing, because say, well, maybe Stan, maybe you're barking up the wrong tree because the spinal cord is, if you want, sort of the slave of all these higher systems, while the function of a higher system like basal ganglia is not so much to do that action selection issue at, at a level that's relevant to a spinal cord, right? That that's a selection among CPGs you could you could solve in, in a fairly straightforward way without having to rely on this really complex machinery of, of a basal ganglia. Is it so complex? Well, if you look at the different transmitter systems used, the connectivity uh, it's not a straightforward system. Right? I mean, the spinal cord has more transmitters and more receptors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, but so, but but mm. but so, but how how do you, how would you deal with that challenge? You could say, well, look, this co-evolved with cortex. Basal ganglia is part of a sequencing system that helps decision making, that helps to implement behavioral strategies, but it doesn't assist you so much in really executing a specific behavioral pattern. For that, we have very powerful brainstem systems like the sensual gray or uh, systems you might find in the reticular but I mean, formation. But I mean, you need coordination among the different movements. Hmm. So, so I think you need a coordinated effort that decides in a given situation which motor program should be called upon. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think you can push too far that it co-evolved the cortex. I mean, it's definitely deeply integrated with subcortical structures mm -hmm. and it scales with cortex, but cortex grows faster. And, and the interpretation might just be that the more cortex you have, the more filters you need for the input to the basal ganglia. Yeah, but, but mm. that's fair enough. But I do feel mm. that, that Stan now shifted the argument a little bit because in, in the original proposition, it's that we have the central pattern generators, and in order to just select which one I'm gonna push, I need my basal ganglia. Right, but if you now talk about coordination, you talk about behavioral patterns and a behavioral no, of pattern. Of course, I mean, I mean the, the next step, I mean, you need to have the basic ganglia to select between the different motor programs. But the basic ganglia needs to have an input that, that makes it appropriate to select one or the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, but a behavioral pattern as such, 
would, would actually comprise many CPGs being coordinated in, in, in some way. Sure. Yeah. Okay. And that's, and that's of course, not so apparent if we only look at swimming in the lamprey. Because then it's like, okay, we swim faster, slower, or we go backwards. Hmm. Right? It doesn't seem I to mean, that's, uh, that's why we, about six, seven years ago, took up the tectum and eye movement and orienting movement and evasive movement. Right. So, it, uh, I mean, just to have a few other items to, mm -hmm. to, right. to, to select from. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, it is very clear that although it seems that we, we, we now have a fair understanding about the connectivity, and I think... We have not touched, we have touched on the basic ganglia, but we have not touched on habenula, the control of the dopamine neurons, reward, evasive. Um, that was very so, so, so I, I, I think that's the, the circuits for evaluation of the result of a given task, I think, is, is also very, very, very critical need to be integrated. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I have not talked about, uh, we know that there is an input from salamus, we know that a prominent input from pallium cortex, uh, but, but we have no uh, information as yet about uh, the pattern of activity, uh, the processing taking part in mm -hmm. cortex. We know that there is a direct animostratal input, but, but we have not recorded from these neurons. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you, you have a lot of I mean, clearly, um, for stratum to do something useful, it needs to have an interesting input. Mm -hmm. and, and that has to come from your cortex in the end. Hmm? From, so, uh, from, uh, from Salamis, yes. And in, in Global Pallidus, do you, you, you've identified a topography there, that, that mm -hmm. different parts of the pallidum projecting out to these different areas mm -hmm. linked with certain yeah. CPGs. Yeah. And uh, Substantia nigra then has one for eye movements. Is, Yes. And uh, I mean, they, it, it it projects also to the um, DLR, the, the encephalic locomotor region, mm. and so forth. So, so we have a topography in 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 the lamprey, and and Takakusaki has shown quite nicely a nigra reticulata in rodents that different par different parts of nigra reticulata projects to to uh, MLR, to tectum, to the postural centers, and also uh, to to swallowing and chewing circuitry. So it mm. seems, I mean, I mean, you have you have subpopulations of cells, so you would have the option also in rodents to control selectively each of So we earlier talked about the distinction between a dorsal ventral uh, stratum, and uh, where you would in your ventral stratum have also more evaluation of of states. But what you emphasized very much for that in your presentation was this uh, habenula, which, which which you saw as as playing a key role in in this lamprey brain in the valuation of of states. So so why why did do you bring that now in in this discussion on the architecture? Of, of action control. I mean, it, it's it's not only in the lamprey. I mean, Hikosaka and others have identified Habenula several years ago. Malenka had a large article in Nature uh, about uh, about recording dopamine neurons and input from uh, from uh, Habenula. Uh, I mean, we published Habenula in 2011, I think. Uh, first, and we have a paper just now coming out on, on, on that also. But, but I mean, what was striking then is is that that I mean, one very important earlier missing link has been what is controlling uh, the uh, uh, dopamine neurons. I mean, Peter Redgrave has worked on that, uh, but but, and you have the pedunculopontine, but now. The abenula comes in as as a very uh, important structure, it seems, from from work in primates and rodents, and uh, and then we have shown that we have the same um, control, the same sort of projections. What I did not mention is the lateral abenula controls dopamine neurons, but there is a separate population within the lateral abenula 
that, uh, that uh, projects uh, to 5-HT neurons and a separate that projects to histamine neurons. Mm -hmm. So we have all these three as separate populations. Mm -hmm. And then what we have shown now, I mean, it was Ikosaka showed in primate that some of, of the globus pallidus neurons projected to pallidum. What we have shown here that is that we have a separate glutamatergic nucleus that that projects. Moreover, we have one subcompartment of stratum, the striosomes, that that project to this glutamatergic. Uh, um, uh, globus pallidus projecting neurons, which is, uh, um, and the striosomes are important in that they also project to dopamine neurons directly. And these uh, neurons are also having input from pallium on, onto them. Uh, it's known from in, um, in, in, primates or rodents, that uh, that pallium or, or cortex can activate the lateral habendular neurons. But we have shown, at least in our, our prep then, that we have direct projections to this globus pallidus um, habendular projecting mm -hmm. some population. So, I mean, evaluation of behavior, the success of behavior, or threatening thing and so forth. I mean, I mean uh, this is, I think, an absolutely critical part in any mm -hmm. motor system. Sure. But would you argue that the habendula should be considered an additional nucleus of the basal ganglia? I don't care. Okay. No, no that, that means no, more that it's an integrated component. No, no, of it, these. it is definitely an, an integrated component. And I mean, one starts now to understand the different inputs that you have to the uh, dopamine uh, mm -hmm. neurons, and I mean that's so, uh, I mean it's it's so central mm -hmm. for both motor performance and, and for. Okay, for but that means in the lamprey discussion, the, the key significance was, I guess, for you to again show, look, this lamprey basal ganglia extended structure is fully consistent with what we find in mammals, mm -hmm. and I mean we have some. Some things that have been elaborated, but uh, which has not yet been shown in mammals. Right. Okay. Mm. So in in mammals, uh, there's it's been strongly argued that uh, the short latency dopamine signal is acting as a prediction error signal for mm. learning. Mm. And uh, is your idea that maybe the in conjunction with the habenula, that a similar sort of system is going to be, exist in the lamprey? I would think so, but. Um, but you're not there yet in mm. terms of being able mm. to confirm that. I heard, I, I heard a result that in a meeting last week where Rue Costa from, uh, from, from Lisbon showed that in, he, he was recording dopamine neurons in the behaving mouse, I think. And what he found was very consistently that whenever the lamprey, uh, no, the rat start or mouse started to to run. There was a short blip of dopamine neuron activity preceding the onset of, of, of locomotion. I mean that uh, that probably I would think is a signal that interacts together with other signals, input to stratum and salamus. But I mean it's it's still still uh, quite interesting. And, and um, in that context, one may also say that um, old experiments in rats, I think, showed that injection of dopamine in, into the ventral stratum led to locomotor activity. But in following up on the, the, the encoding of prediction error in some form by dopamine and an effect on plasticity, does it mean lampreys can, be can, can show operant conditioning? I would think so, but it has not been shown. Okay, but that, that might be mm. a relevant experiment to try, I guess. Mm. Are you going to do that? Someday, probably. <laughs> okay. Um, can we can we quickly touch on uh, the pallium? So you mentioned in your talk you didn't uh, ex 
expound on the possibility of the hyperdirect pathway from cortex? I mean, what we have shown, there is a, a small area of the ventrolateral pallium which can be stimulated, and when you stimulate that, uh, you you can elicit both movements of the mouse, and it's I mean it's small area, and we we think there is a selectivity between different parts, but it's still work in progress. Uh, we can elicit locomotor activity, we can elicit uh, orienting behavior, so so it's it's a discrete pallial area, and when we uh, inject dye into this area, then we have anterograde fibers in stratum, in the subsalamic nucleus, and in tectum. So I, I mean, so I mean, we have the hyperdirect pathway. So mm. I mean, the important part of our uh, models was to have that mm. projection from cortex, not mm. just to striatum, but also to the subthalamic nucleus, yeah, yes. STN, mm. so that you can get the balance of mm. excitation and inhibition. Mm. Mm. And so y there's evidence that that might be there in the first vertebrates. Yeah, no, no, it's uh, it's very clear. not yet published, but very very clear evidence. Mm. So now to um, so at, at the core of the discussion and sort of the spinal cord, this notion of a central pattern generator, rhythmic activity. Mm -hmm. We find rhythmic activity in many parts of the brain, mm -hmm. the local and global levels. Mm -hmm. So would you think would you think that the central pattern generator that, that you've studied in the spinal cord is also like a, a building block, a fundamental building block of the whole of the brain, higher areas of the brain? Or do you see them really as qualitatively different? I mean, we had uh, many years ago, or some, some years ago, we had a microcircuit grant uh, where, where we had had the spinal cord, we had hippocampus, we had cerebellum, and we had had neocortex. And the the intention there was to look at similarities between these circuits. Mm. And uh, and we at the end of the grant we we published a TINS issue with I think five different reviews, with essentially with claiming that that you you mix the different building blocks in order to make the different mm -hmm. microcircuits that suits that particular mm -hmm. behavior right okay so so to to finish up Stan um, so look you, you you've been around in this uh, in neuroscience now for a long time also in in in, in different positions that are really very important for the field like now you're leading fence um, so based on your experience what would be Stan's law that should guide our or science? I think <clears throat> I think the most important for any researcher is 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 to try to identify what she or he think uh, thinks is important and try to do that well. I I uh, that's what you call a cottage science, but I think mm. think the pro the major progress in neuroscience may often come from uh, from small groups that are, are are dedicated and i think it's an, an advantage if you work in a group where you have people with different expertise but interested fundamentally in the same problem mm -hmm. so they complement each other so focus if focus on the on the problem mm -hmm. that is important, at least important in your own mind. Right, exactly. <laughs> and then the last question. Um, so, five years from now, Tony and I will come and visit you in Stockholm, and we're going to confront you with, with a prediction you're going to make today. So what's the key prediction that, that you would like to sort of put on the table today that you find is the most important one that you want to see validated in five years' time? I mean, what I think, uh, my my prediction is is that that well prediction. Um, what I like to see is is that we really understand much better 
the uh, role of the basal ganglia in terms of the control of behavior, and this also includes input, and that we also uh, understand the uh, circuits underlying evaluation of behavior. So you're saying in five years' time you will understand it? Is that a prediction? There, there is always levels of understanding. <laughs> That's safe. <laughs> All right, Stan Grillner, thank you very much for this conversation. <laughs>